Hi everyone, Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development, and this is part of our Veteran Stories Difference Makers, and I'm here with Mike Demo, who is a veteran. Nice to have you with us, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate you offering to have me on. Well, I'm excited to hear your story. Why don't you start with telling us about what motivated you to join the, the military in the first place? So it's an interesting thing. Um, in my direct family, I didn't really have anybody that served. Um, my grandpa's brothers had all gone over for World War II, but I felt compelled to serve. Uh, and I was really excited about the Air Force and they didn't call me back. So I went to the Marine recruiter, said, if I can't do what I want to do, let me do it with the best. And, you know, it's a tale as old as time. He told me that I could be an air traffic controller. Uh, I live just outside of New York City, so I figured easy six-figure job, 19 years old, this is going to be great because I was doing the reserves. And I didn't find out until after boot camp. Um, I'd gone up to visit my unit and they said, well, we don't do air traffic control around here. I was like, ah, they don't know what they're talking about. My recruiter told me, <laughs> told me, Craig. So we get done with our combat training. This was actually 21 years ago uh, today. And there's a line for Pensacola, Florida, which this time of year is lovely. And my order said 29 palms in California. And I didn't know what that meant. So I asked the corporal next to me, you know, corporal, what, what, what does this mean? And he laughed at me. Um, so it's in the Mojave desert. It was a base that was so bad to live in that the army found it to be uninhabitable and gave it to us. And it turned out to be the best thing ever. Cause what I ended up doing, um, you know, in the smart transcripts, it says no civilian equivalent, but in English it's battle space manager. So I got to be the link between the air combat and ground combat sides and make sure that aircraft are deconflicted. Um, our airstrikes are going in where they need to be. Mm. But to me, the most important one, in addition to the information flow, was if our guys were injured, it was up to me to make sure that they not only got out expeditiously, but get them to where they need to go for the best level of care. Amazing. And, you know, so that was in 2001. I got done with my occupational school. Started my first semester at my local college, and then the towers went down. Made me realize I was probably not going to be going to school very much uh, anytime soon. Um, that I volunteered for the first Iraq War, uh, the push in, and I didn't get selected. Made me a little bit salty, so I doubled down to make sure that I was more proficient at my job than anybody else. And when I went finally in 2004. I was a corporal and I was essentially the product expert, if you will, for how to run a system. And that came from a very interesting event in uh, Arizona. We were doing what's called WTI weapons and tactics instructors. And it's one of the few places there's live helicopters going around and you can actually practice your job. Mm. But we work in a tent in the middle of the desert, but it has air conditioning, which means all of the officers that are watching the event want to come hang out in your tent. And I'm 20, just hit maybe 22 at this point. And there's full board colonels all talking behind me. And we run an information clearing system. I can't hear my people. We pass notes. And like I started to get really stressed out because I'm losing situational awareness. There's all these distractions. And I had a captain come over to me and say, hey, Corporal, 
what's going on in the uh, airspace right now. And we have boards that tell us what's going on. So I start reading them that it's like, so you can read, but you don't know what's going on. Do you No, sir? Why? Well, there's the distractions, these things going on. It's like, well, who owns this tent? Well, mm. Taxpayers. No, it's your tent. You're the crew chief. If you cannot function with these people here, tell them to leave. Wow. It's a wild paradigm. You know, yeah. E4 in the military talking to 06. That's a big gap. And I was like, gentlemen, uh, I'm going to have to ask you to leave, please. And they all left. Wow. And he did what might be the most impactful thing that I could have had at that time. He's like, all right, Corporal, step back here. Take a breath. And just look at what's going on and get yourself back in. Hmm. And once I went back in there, completely calm and was able to execute at a high level. That's one of the awards back there was for that evolution. Hmm. And it changed the paradigm because I was always good under pressure. Um, I was never the first person to get my report done. I was never the first person to start studying for a test. You know, I just didn't do it. Um, but when I got that lesson, that allowed me to learn how to detach, recenter, and then go forward again. Mm. That became very important because when we were in Iraq, so the reserve component, we all went to Al-Assad Air Base and we did communications relay from the back of a C-130. The main communication center was in a town called Ramadi and that's where the active duty was. Right. And two weeks into the tour, they asked me to come down. Okay. Don't really have a choice. So sure, I'll do that. Get down there. And the active duty has all the fancy new technology and stuff that we hadn't received yet. Um, and I started off as the basic plot of the first lowest role in the crew. Inside of two weeks, I was side seating with the crew chief. And I ended up replacing him within the first month. And the captain that was in charge of the system, you know, very similar, would get frazzled, start to yell. And when you've got troops in contact, you don't need your operators mm. being yelled at and mm. getting stressed. You need more of that Morgan Freeman voice instead of that drill instructor voice. Right. And I was able to work with the captains, like, sir, I'll, I'll take care of it. And did the same thing, was able to detach. All right. What do we have going on? What assets do we have available to us? What can we do to impact the battle space? And most importantly, take care of our people and get them back out. And within another month, he was essentially just checking our secure email for us and I was running the system. And that went through. We had the Battle of Fallujah, which is basically the largest battle of the Iraq war up to that point. And for 12 hours a day, I would manage the airstrikes, medevacs, resupply missions. And a lot of people ask like, oh, so you got to drop bombs. You got to control three AC-130s at the same time, which they are cool. But to me, it was more how much gap did we have when we got somebody back to a hospital during the golden hour? Right. And, you know, those are the highlights of the deployment. They're also the lowlights. Um, you know, there are times we didn't get people out. And right. You know, it, it was hard to learn that there's things not under your control. Um, I was also the controller doing the officer billet side when we had a CH-53 crash with 30 plus Marines on board. Again, 
you know, there's only a few reasons you ever wake up to commanding general and that qualifies and to be able to maintain your composure and be able to handle the mission, even though something tragic has happened. Yeah. It was, it was a good lesson in how to handle adversity. I didn't realize it till later that I did nothing in regards to processing that incident, uh, which would come back later. Um, But we get home, you know, it's awesome. Get to see your family. Um, My little brother, my youngest brother, he was 10 at the time, 12. He's a Sergeant in the Marine Corps now, like, which is wild to me that he's now like, you know, on his second um, contract and he was so young when I came back from my first one. Right. So we had our second deployment come up because during the surge, they were a little bit short staffed. So they were putting together reservists to do security deployments. Uh, Second deployment went to Djibouti, Africa, which really gave me a lot of perspective around the blessings that we have, you know, in basically all of the world, but specifically the first world and in the English speaking world, it's like Mm -hmm. the amount of blessings we had, like before, when we just got started, we were talking about that positive mindset. Mm -hmm. When you've seen what real abject poverty, despair, lack, really looks like getting a flat tire is just not, not something you're concerned about, but you know, I thought everything was going great during my uh, time in. And when I got back from my second deployment, I decided, you know, I I could feel that I was angry. Like there was some stuff that happened on that deployment that didn't fall in line with my ethos. So I did what they told me to do. Hey, raise your hand if you notice there's a difference. Go talk to somebody. And at this point, I was the highest rated um, person in my occupational specialty in the Marine Corps at my level. I had a officer candidate package that had been accepted. So my career is about to take a little bit of a different turn. So I thought mm-hmm. the... Military medical system back then didn't have a good understanding for post-traumatic stress. They had a flip chart that said, did you see somebody get blown up? Did you do this? Did you, that didn't apply to my situation. Right. And I, and I understand now there's a lot of contextual things that happen before you ever go to the military. That'll really help determine if you've had issues or you're going to have an issue with an event. In my case, abandonment issues from my childhood, not, um, talking right. about my podcast, but I put an episode up about it on intentional disruption. You know, those feelings of abandonment, and then you have 30 men die that have kids. Hmm. And it's like, wow. I didn't do the right job to get them there. And why not me instead of them? They could have gone back to their kids. Hmm. So that got diagnosed as bipolar instead of a post traumatic stress situation. So in the course of an afternoon, I went from planning out my last semesters of college and officer school to being told I have to sign out of the unit and that's it. There's no transition. You're just go back home. There's no benefits package related to it. You're just done. Go. This is in 2008, which was a great time for the markets and economy, as we would recall. And I didn't have a degree yet. Right. I was taking care of my stepmom and my two brothers. So essentially I was working as a 1099, 60 hours a week, and then going to my six classes, I'd 
leave before they'd wake up in the morning, go to class, go to work, come home with groceries, pay the bills. And then I decided I didn't really need to go to college to do that. So I opened up my own marketing company. Um, and in 08 to 09, I grew about a hundred percent. And then in 2010, you know, working a hundred hour weeks caught up to me and it all started to catch up. Business failed and ended up having to move back in with my mom, which was exciting. And then I've rebuilt from there. Uh, along the way, I destroyed a marriage. Um, remarried now with a beautiful woman, have a son, and my daughter's going to be here in about a month. So hey. you know, many times. But yeah, it was it was quite a, a shift. Um, when we talk about yeah. transition, it really took me hitting rock bottom somewhere around 2015, 2016. Mm. Um, I was at a point where I would you know, go through a couple bottles of hard liquor a week. And I was still being productive. I've got awards back there from my position in finance where I was the wholesaler of the year three years in a row while I was a complete dumpster fire. Right. It's just not, not sure how that all happened. You know, call it a blessing. But then I found on a podcast a gentleman named Ryan Nidell, who I have a relationship with to this day, and he attracted me in because he put out to the universe the dark things that had happened in his life and what he'd done to come to pass to correct those things. You know, talking about the opposite of the virtuous circle where you can feel that you're starting to go down. And there's a lot of exit ramps if you just address it in that situation. But most of the people in the military, we just try to be tough. Like if we don't quit. We can push through anything. And then you hit rock bottom. Well, it can't get worse from here. So it feels like things are getting better. But until you address those core issues, it just continues on that cycle. And it's not right. until you acknowledge it and work on it that you can start to make that change. And that's what it was. I'd gone to therapy at the VA for years. They tried medications. None of it you know, helped. But working with somebody that's not a licensed clinician, but could have real conversations helped get me through it. And that's when I decided to make the shift to at first start coaching veterans in transition and now coaching business owners and specifically helping veterans that want to become business owners to learn how to skip the line a little bit, Craig. Mm. You know, a lot of people want to do a startup and in the vet tribe and everything that we see. I know you talked to Travis Johnson uh, not too long ago. Um, yeah. and Keith McKeever too. He's been on mm -hmm. online. But we talked about instead of being in the startup phase where 80% of businesses fail, can you take over an organization and you're going to make mistakes? That's totally fine. But can you start doing that from a position of solvency? Mm -hmm. And that's what I've been doing a lot of work recently on is helping veterans take over some of these small businesses because when they go away, another local business doesn't usually fill it. Um, in my That's hometown, right. we have, it's a company called Levine's automotive. They have like 20 locations in Connecticut. Well, the owner just decided to retire. It sold to a national auto parts chain. Right. And that community influence is lost. And, you know, with all the loss that we had of small business during COVID, 
it just seems like a good fit to have, you know, veterans who look to lead a lot of the times mm. become leaders in an organization and then also pillars in their community. It, it seems like a very synergistic fit. Mike, can I just interrupt and ask about um, the misdiagnosis, the therapy that the VA gave you, the drugs that you're on? That sounds like a a tsunami of difficulty, which mm -hmm. doesn't make things better because they weren't addressing the real problem. What you spoke to this gentleman who's not a um, a medical therapist, but provided some some strategies, some space, some encouragement. Tell us just one or two of the things that really made the difference for you so that now you can go and be a difference maker for others. So one of the things that the clinicians couldn't do, putting the medication aside, like the SSRIs mm -hmm. didn't have an impact on me. Mm -hmm. um, but having somebody that would hold me accountable mm -hmm. and check me on my nonsense not sure if I'm allowed to cuss here, so I just won't. Thank you. But most of the time, like clinicians, they have rules that they have to follow. Mm. And one of those mm. isn't saying, hey, Mike, what the bleep? Like, you're not hurting me by not doing this. It's hurting you. Why do you feel need to be self-destructive? What's holding you back? Right. And that's where we got into a lot of stuff. And that's where I was able to realize what I'd mentioned earlier a lot of the reason I had so much trouble with those people that died in that helicopter crash or the people I wasn't able mm -hmm. to medevac out that died on helicopters, it wasn't because of an error or omission on my part during that event. It came back to those feelings of abandonment and embodying them in myself. So one of his things is, you know, getting rid of shame and guilt in your life. And that was something that was really helpful to me. Mm. He also helped me with some of the decision-making. Um, I tended to be a pleaser because, again, looking for attention, affection, and love. Well, how about you start off with making sure you love yourself, right? love your family, and then give the rest of the love to everybody else. Right. So making that change, which sometimes gets me in trouble with my wife because if it doesn't serve me, it can't serve her. And it can't serve our family, which means it's not going to serve society. So saying no, when you get the honey-do list to a couple of the items, not an awesome conversation at first. But she thankfully understands like it's coming from a position of love and grace where, no, I want to help you achieve your goals. In order to do that, I need to handle this first, and then I'm happy right. to help you. Great. So That's difficult, difficult to get um, to be in a a solid long-term lifelong commitment of a relationship and to say no. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's not easy for a complete stranger, never mind yeah. the person that yeah. you're with every day. Yeah. So, but yeah. it's a powerful thing and mm. it's helped her a lot with some of her family because they have a lot of that paradigm too, but to be able to step back from like a guilt-based decision and just realize mm. how much you're serving them by just saying no. Not maybe, so that they aren't sure and things are in flux. Mm. Doesn't serve me. You know, Craig, I can't do it. I'm sorry. And I might even get rid of that. I'm sorry. I just can't do it. Love that. The, the stop doing list, the yeah. no list, it's something that a lot of people avoid. Yeah. And it's made our marriage a lot stronger because mm. we can be just open and honest with each other. You know, is it 
mm. inconvenient sometimes. Sure. But we make up for it because we know that I'm doing that so I can finish the things that I need to do to honor my commitments to you. Right. At the end of the day, if that's what it always comes back to. Mike on the screen and it's, it's on the recording. We're on uh, LinkedIn and YouTube and Twitter live right now. Okay. And then the recording will be on Pinterest, Twitch, um, the other LinkedIn channel, Facebook, all over the place. Um, I'd really love to just wrap up. If you could come back to, you were mentioning before about what you do with businesses and veterans and what you're doing right now, because I think that's that's a fantastic thing you're doing. And for everyone, you can see Mike's um, internet address is right there on the screen, and I'll make sure it's in the show notes as well. So, Mike, how about you wrap up by just sharing what you do so that people who are in the position or have the desire to engage with you, they can do that. Yeah. So having done a startup myself in 2008, I wiped out all of my savings, my deployment money that I'd put away, and went into business for myself. And I ended up being in a scarcity model because I had everything committed. All the chips were on the table. If I lost, I didn't have a car. I didn't have a place to live. If you can instead, with a little bit of help, and this is what I help people do, find a business that they're looking to transition that is already cash flow positive. That means that the business is sustaining itself. And when you take it over, you know, with the debt service required to buy a business, just like buying a house, you can still end up, even if it's not a massive paycheck at first, you can still earn money while you learn how to operate that business. And there's plenty of them out there. I mean, the sad fact is 80% of businesses never sell. They end up just closing down and selling off their assets. That's not a great outcome for the business owner. Mm -hmm. Um, Usually from what I've seen, they didn't have a business coach to help them put the systems in place so they could step away. That might be a part two about my dad having a heart attack on the job site and dying because at 65, he was still swinging a hammer. Mm. Never learned the processes to have a business because most business owners are just highly paid employees because right. if they leave the business, it doesn't continue. Mm. So a lot of them don't sell because of that reason. That's part of my practice. The other part is helping veterans that want to move into a business role to identify the businesses that actually do have those structural things in place or their natural gifts can make up the gaps that they don't like that current business doesn't have and then help them through the process of, you know, getting the financing, different ways to do that. And then I help coach them along the way so that they're, they don't have to start at zero they can work with somebody that already knows here are the things you need to do to be successful. Mm, that's great. Mike, really want to thank you for your time and thank you for your service as well. I should have led with that. Um, you've been through some, some tough things and I love the way that your focus is on how do you improve yourself so that you can improve the lives of the people that matter to you and making a difference in the lives of other people like veterans. I, I really admire you and I admire the work you're doing. So I encourage people who are watching the recording, if this is of interest for you, if you're a veteran or otherwise, I would imagine, Mike, they can reach out to you via your website and, and engage with you, yeah? No, absolutely. It's the simplest website you'll ever see because it doesn't need to be more complicated. <laughs> 
Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being with us. Just as I wrap up, Mike, please don't leave. Um, for those of you watching the recording, UARD, we do have qualifications, bachelor's and master's degrees. They are VA approved for funding as well. We'd love to have you enroll with us. We'd love to help you achieve your career goals, just like Mike focuses on helping people achieve their business goals as well. So thanks so much for being with us. I appreciate your time. We look forward to seeing you again on the next Veteran Stories episode. 